Hey, Michael. What? Did you know that the contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only? What? They are not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. That's crazy. Today on The Lab Report, we're going to talk to Dr. Sarah Campbell. Leading researcher on athletic performance and its effect on the microbiome. It has an effect on the microbiome? Totally. Whoa. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Sad to be back, Patty. I know Vegas is your favorite place. Oh, it's exhausting, but it was actually kind of fun. Exhausting? Maybe you should have been gambling all night. What? You heard me. <gasps> Hello! Hi, Michael Chapman. How are you today? I'm doing great, Patty Devers. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, and I don't gamble. Oh, really? Right. Except with your mom jokes. Yeah, that one's tricky. You kind of have to know your audience. Like your mom. Good one. Uh, anyway, this is a podcast. It's called The Lab Report. It's brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, and it's where we talk about all sorts of hmm. different things regarding functional medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and the like. Yeah, and if you're new to the show, welcome. And if you're returning, thank you so much for all of your support, and hopefully you go to iTunes or Spotify and perhaps hit the subscribe button, rate, review, leave us a little bit of a review. We like those. Yeah, sometimes I'll even read them. Maybe we should do a review. Yes. Should we read a review? Yes. All right, let's do that. All right, I'm just going to pull one at random here. Okay. This is from Palma Rosa 33 uh-huh. and it's the title is Please Stop. <laughs> I would love to listen to this podcast for their information, but it sounds like a middle school dance. Two stars. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't read any more of these. I mean, it's I don't know how that's not one star. It sounds like <laughs> this is really bothering her. Two stars. Palma Rosa. But we appreciate those reviews anyway, Palma Rosa. Uh, yes. Thanks for trying to make us better. We uh-huh. will not stop, at least not until we're told to stop by Geneva. That's right. Um, which could be coming sooner than later <laughs> if we keep getting reviews like that. I will say, mm. for every review like that, there are 10 really positive ones. So I just want to say that. And number two, probably the best title of review, of review I have ever seen. It was very direct. I it mean, was. just to just tell us to just stop like <laughs> mid recording and walk out. Like, at, like we were actually painting her. Right. Like, like we're ear poison. <laughs> well, it's okay. Not everyone gets us. We're not everyone's cup of tea. And after some therapy, I'll be fine. I mean, I assume there are stop buttons on the device that you're there listening are. to this pod. So you can, there's other podcasts you can change it to there, also yep. if you'd like. Sure. So, you know, just we're here to help, is all <laughs> I'm trying to say. If you're having pains in your ear from this, <laughs> just change the channel. I don't want that for you. It's not good for your health. Just just leave us. Just I, leave. I will tell you, my sister was listening. Who she She's probably the biggest fan of this podcast. She was listening to one episode and got an ocular migraine and called me to yell at me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what complex biochemistry does to mm, some people, you mm-hmm, know? Sure. I mean, it's not for everyone. That's right. Anyway, what are we talking about today? Well, we're going to talk to Dr. Sarah Campbell. This is going to be great. A, a researcher out of Rutgers University, and she's an exercise physiologist who happens to focus on the gut microbiome. Yeah. I love having PhD researchers on. Oh, me too. It's, it's so great because they have such a different lens of, of viewing the information um, and, and, you know, based on the scientific method and all the research mm. that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we get to sort of like get their insights and then try to see where it might be leading to future clinical impact. 
And it's just, I, I just love that one-two combination of, uh, we should get, we should have nothing but PhDs on anymore. I love that too. And it, it really is, it's difficult as clinicians. We sort of get ingrained in, in our thinking and PhDs just, they just follow the science, man. Yeah. And Dr. Campbell basically uh, started this niche area of research around exercise and its impact on the microbiome. And so uh, it's going to be fascinating. I can't wait to learn a ton. So let's just go ahead and talk to Dr. Campbell. Patty Devers. Yes. Today we have Dr. Sarah Campbell. So stoked. I know. Let right? me tell you a little bit about Dr. Sarah Campbell. She is an exercise physiologist and associate professor and graduate program director in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Rutgers University. She received her bachelor and master's degrees in exercise science at Bloomsburg University. Shout out, Nipa. <laughs> Dr. Campbell then pursued her doctorate at Florida State University, where she went on to do postdoctorate work in nutrition and physiology. At Rutgers, Dr. Campbell is part of the Rutgers University Microbiome Program. I've learned come to learn is uh, RUMP. acronym RUMP, uh, an is. initiative that <laughs> focuses on microbiome science research, education, clinical care, technology transfer, and community outreach. She's been widely published and acknowledged for her work on the effects of diet and exercise on the gut microbiome. Dr. Campbell serves as an editorial board member for several well-known international journals and sits on several exercise and sports science committees. And with that... Welcome, Dr. Sarah Campbell. Thank you so much for thank being here. Thank you for having me. What a nice introduction. You guys are so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Your energy level will be met. Oh, I love it. Bring it. Bring it. Well, I will, I will say that on the show, we've spoken to several PhD kinesiology type people on the show about their work. And it's things like skeletal muscle, mitochondrial dysfunction, metabolic flexibility. I mean, it's a specialty with many tentacles, right? But I think you might be our first whose main focus is just the microbiome and athletics. So why that focus? Right. So, um, you know, I like to rise up to challenges. So I always tell this story and it's the same story. Every time I got to Rutgers, I came out of, um, you know, an exercise science PhD you know, um, heart-focused cholesterol metabolism, mm -hmm. switched to nutrition and physiology, still a very cholesterol metabolism heart-focused. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had a conversation with somebody and they're like, well, what are you going to actually do to impact this field? And that's one of those questions where you're like, hmm. oh, gosh. <laughs> they go home and cry for a few minutes and you're like, oh, my God, what are, you, what are they talking about? My tenure clock is ticking. Right. I just started thinking about integrating certain aspects of exercise and nutrition and how to make an impact. And one of the first things I searched and one of the first grants I wrote at Rutgers was really, you know, to, is bioavailability of nutrients the same between a lean and an obese person, you know, because we have these very general recommendations for health and are there differences? And of course, bioavailability, you have to search gut, yeah. right? The way that's so, you know, obesity and gut kind of came up and it was 2010 and the publications from like Lay and Turnbaugh and Gordon's lab had just come out. Caney as well, Backhead, all of those heavy hitters mm -hmm. had really only just come out in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. So I start downloading and reading and I'm, you know, starting to get excited. I'm like, okay, microbiome integrates with host physiology. I'm like, there is nothing that changes host physiology like exercise training. Mm -hmm. So my first PubMed search was exercise, gut microbiome, and there was a big fat zero mm -hmm. back in 2010. Right. And I just decided this is going to be a cool area. Yep. And I essentially started from scratch at Rutgers and, you know, got myself to meet these people and 
you know, wonderful collaborators who are friends who I still have today, who are on, you know, still all my papers with me and working with me. And that's how it all began. I love as crazy as it sounds with a zero PubMed search and just, you know, a drive to say, this is going to be an area that I hope to make an impact on. Got That's in there great. early. I yeah. love that. And you story. are making an impact. That's amazing. Absolutely. Well, and oh, thank you. Uh, I thanks, hope so. Yeah. And, and thanks to, you know, the, the work and part that you're doing, more and more studies are start, are coming out all the time on exercise and the microbiome. And so it kind of begs the question that I think is, is perfect for you to help us understand. Does the bacteria in the microbiome or, you know, bacteria, fung, uh, fungi, all the components, um, right. do they t- tend to change first with ep- ep- exercise? Because, or are they de- like adapting to exercise? So, for example, there's articles showing, you know, there's elevated lactate metabolizers with long distance runners. But is that an adaptive mechanism or is it like bi directional in some way? Right. So, you know, I would say, it's probably adaptive, but I also think it's bi-directional, right? So I just actually gave that talk, the bi-directional link, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we got invited to give that talk out at ACSM in 2023 in Denver. So nice. we're really excited mm-hmm. about, about that. And so, you know, you can do the, you know, straight up before and after an exercise program and look at the gut microbiota and see how it changes. Who's there? Is there anybody different? Do you notice increases in abundances of certain types of bacteria. And, you know, early on it was butyrate producers, you know, as the research has now evolved, you know, there are some studies that say, as you just mentioned, the Villanella atypica study is propionate Mm -hmm. is the thing. And then there's this other study that was like, well, it was only acetate when we infused that enhanced the exercise capacity. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think in some ways that then links back to, well, it's gotta be bi-directional, right? And it's likely that since there are so many adaptations that occur as a result of exercise, that in likelihood, all three short chain fatty acids are probably important, but maybe for different aspects of exercise adaptation, right? Mm. So more studies are coming out where it's do the opposite, either take a germ-free mouse and see if it's able to adapt to exercise like a convention, like, I'm sorry, a pathogen-free mouse, a.k.a the mouse that just has all the microbes, but no pathogens, right? Mm. Or give your animal some antibiotics and knock out the microbiota and see if that exercise training response is the same. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is it's not. When you knock out the mi- microbiota, you know, there are certain things that happen and exercise capacity is is altered potentially, mm. you know? And we're going to throw in a third complication, <laughs> but sex, sex differences are a thing, oh. right? Some of the studies that have come out showing differences in or reductions in exercise capacity seem to be in male mice. Some that show mm-hmm. alterations, for example, like that there's an, you know, a lack of hypertrophy and type one muscle fibers. Um, this was a female study done by, you know, colleagues in Kentucky. Um, you know, also very similar colleagues out in California looked at their high runner lines and noticed that, you know, the female mice wild type, again, not really have uh, a change in ability to exercise, but there were some skeletal muscle and or physiological adaptations that were different as a result of no microbiota. So there might be this very, you know, interesting sex difference going on, but there definitely seems to be 
alterations to things like skeletal muscle in particular that are different when you give that animal antibiotics. So it's hard not to think that there is something bi-directional there because in the absence of the microbiota, you're not seeing, you know, we're revising a paper, hopefully now that shows that, you know, mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation is blunted, uh, mitochondrial biogenesis markers are blunted, and exercise capacity is reduced. Mm-hmm. You know, we were also the ones in 2016, along with several others, who showed, okay, when you exercise them, you get this these beneficial changes to butyrate producers and so forth. So you can't really just, I don't think you can really just say it's one way. I yeah. think it's, it's both ways. I mean, if you just take the basic function of the microbiota to be in symbiosis with the host, that Mm. baseline level changes with exercise. So to maintain symbiosis, it has to adapt, right? Right. Which is why when it's dysbiotic, Mm -hmm. many suggest, and the evidence is, you know, pretty abundant, especially for certain chronic diseases like type 2 diabetes, you, you get a disease, mm. right? So it, it can't necessarily be di- by, you know, not bi-directional. Sure. At least that's how I feel. And I think that's a good question. You know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? I don't think exercise wise, that study has been done per se. We are getting ready to publish a time course study just to see how things change over time, but not necessarily with the question, does it change first? And then do we see an enhanced exercise capacity? There has been some of those studies. My colleague in Rump, as you like to call it, <laughs> Li Peng, right. looked at that with diabetes. And he did actually note that there were changes to the microbiome prior to metabolic adaptations. That makes sense. All right. Yeah. So there there are some studies that are starting yeah. to say, hey, the microbiome might change first before you see the adaptation to the metabolism, which is kind of cool, you know, which, totally. which means you can use maybe the microbiota as a biomarker, especially mm-hmm. as more mm-hmm. studies might emerge in this area. Yeah, Well, right. building on, building on some of that, when you're doing studies on the microbiome and exercise, like how, how do you know how much of that relationship is strict, strictly between movement and microbiome? Because some of this could depend on diet or hormonal, as you just said, there's sex differences between them or the metabolic influences, as you just discussed, right? right? So Is it all of the above? And how do you even parse that out when you do a research study? Right. So that's a good question because we just submitted actually, or are in the process, I should say, of resubmitting some of that to the NIH, parsing all of that out. How do you do that? Um, So to date, very few studies have really parsed a lot of that out, right? We looked at, like I said, this time course study looked at where there are specific abundances or strain level changes that occurred as a result of sex that maybe weren't as a result of exercise? And the answer is yes, we are seeing some of that. Are there some that occur and are heavily driven by diet? I think think the argument can be made that diet is probably one of the most profound influencers of the microbiome. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the answer to that is yes, we saw some of that too. Similarly with exercise, there are certain things that exercise does that maybe sex or diet don't do. Okay. Right. So there are some independent effects and you can parse some of that out based on some of the bioinformatics that you do, mm-hmm. how you script things, how you blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Right. But experimentally, I think it's just as important to parse those out, to use unique models or germ free models um, or, you know, linking certain aspects of things to get at. Are there particular guilds and or species and or strains that are particular to maybe exercise alone or sex alone or so forth? And so you know, you have to really carefully plan those studies and in, in both, you know, 
both sexes and then either with a diet intervention only and then you know you bring in exercise later Mm. and and so you start to potentially then see changes so it all comes down to being really um anal pun or no pun intended i guess (laughs) we're talking about right to how you experimentally design those studies and really getting at you know the techniques it's it's also then a combination of very expensive you know post um you know, intervention techniques for, you know, metagenomics and transcriptomics and genomics and, and metabolomics and just a collection of these omic based um, practices and procedures that you link then to, you, you bring it back to actually individual mice then within a specific group and those group trends then hopefully reflect what you're hypothesizing is right. that there likely are differences that are specific to sex and exercise and diet independently. Um, but then they, they all might converge. I mean, eating, you know, overall a healthy lifestyle has also been linked to positive benefits. And that's where the, like the Mediterranean diet, we know that, you know, our Mediterranean lifestyle is one of those really, um, in fact, in 20, I think it's still considered, you know, one of the healthy lifestyle patterns that's recommended as the diet, dietary, you know, guidelines for Americans. And we know that healthy lifestyle pattern, which encompasses physical activity, healthy diet, you know, healthy social interactions, good mm-hmm. sleep and so forth, you know, do contribute to beneficial changes. So yeah. chances are it's a, it's, it is individual things that may converge for an overall health benefit as well. Right, right. Sounds super complicated. I'm just glad you it is, to do but it. I think that <laughs> I'm that's glad our, you do that's it. That's our field though in right. general, right? Yeah. I, I think you would have a hard time asking a skeletal muscle person, how much is it? of it is actual, you know, protein intake versus, you know, programs designed for skeletal muscle hypertrophy and how do you parse out those kind of things. And the truth is, okay, well, you can supplement and not exercise and Mm -hmm. exercise and not supplement. Then you put them together. Is it an additive effect? Is it not? You know, and those are the types of things that that they look at and and think about asking questions about. Complex systems. The yeah. um, a follow up question I had was, you know, you mentioned I'm, trying, I'm thinking about translating kind of the research to maybe a little bit more of our clinical audience, too. And I was curious whether you guys have looked at how, um, say, the effects of an antibiotic or, or germ free study in a mouse. Is there a window of time that that might affect activity? Have you noticed sort of like a, a lull and then it's the microbiome kind of rebounds and you, you kind of have a readaption? Has that been studied at all? Right. So there has been, there was a study um, that looked at, um, what do they call it? It natural reseeding. So mice are corporophagic. They, they oh, eat their gross. own feces. Mm-hmm. So yeah, actually <laughs> most, is most, as crazy as it sounds, most animals are. Yeah. We're like the one, you know, <laughs> although FDA did just approve FMTs mm-hmm. as a treatment, yep. which like, I mean, this is just in the last like 10 days, week, yeah. which is really awesome for our field. So the natural reseeding study does show that then when they kind of naturally consume those, you know, fecal pellets, which, you know, reseeds their microbiome, exercise capacity is restored. Cool. That's pretty strong that, you know, that's pretty strong evidence. I actually thought you were going to ask another question and I was like, yes, the IRB is in review right now. (laughs) We actually did put an IRB in for um, looking at, you know, basic antibiotics on human performance. Oh, nice. oh great. Great, great, yeah. great, great. Nice. So that, I mean, that is cool. should have been reviewed by, um, you know, IRB this week. 
So, all right, so then you come back on after we get all that information. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so, it. you know, it, it's interesting, though, because I was just talking to my student who did um, an internship with, you know, a mutual friend of ours, and he was asking what I thought. And I was like, well, you know, listen, we're starting with the most basic and pro- commonly prescribed antibiotic, the z which mm-hmm. probably I should be on, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, and, you know, he's like, do you think something will happen? And I'm like, honestly, I'm not really sure. Hmm. I was like, you take someone who regularly exercises, you know, and like give them an antibiotic, not when they're sick, because that's the confounding question, right? right. A lot of the literature right. back in the day gave the antibiotic when they were sick and then said, Hey, how do you feel? You want to exercise today? You know, <laughs> no. and the no answer could be like, well, is it the antibiotic that's, mm. or is it that you're feeling sick? Right. right. So we're looking to just kind of give a healthy person, like a healthy mouse. We did an antibiotic to knock some microbes out and, and to see. Cool. And so, you know, I'm not sure a Z pack is going to be strong enough. I could be too, you know, proven totally wrong, mm-hmm. which is the great, awesome part of science. Right. Yeah. But, but we'll see. Like, I think it'll take something a little bit stronger that maybe knocks out way more microbes to do something. But we'll, we'll see. That, that I'm really excited about that. My, my one PhD student is like, this is going to be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> cool. That's great. Well, another question, too. A lot of the research seems to be related around aerobic exercise. And so it does. I'm wondering, have you, has there been a difference in resistance training, high-intensity interval training, those different forms? Or do we think it's probably relatively similar? Right. And and so that's a good question. And I probably should have, but I didn't because we're in the middle of another grant, but do a PubMed search to see if resistance training is coming out. Um, I do, we did see, um, crap, we did review that study in our um, journal club as part of our lab, but it wasn't a really well-designed study. So we were kind of like, hmm, I'm not sure how we feel about some of these results. Mm -hmm. Um, It was talking about how it like, you know, messes with intestinal permeability and all of these other things that, you know, can influence the microbiome and systemic health. When you take a look, you know, I go back to experimental design, that's really important. Are you really designing the experiment over what questions you were answering? And we weren't sure there was a a great match there. So, you know, those studies... Um, the one study I mentioned in the female mice that showed a reduction in, in type one hypertrophy was treadmill based, but it's out of the, like I said, my uh, colleague's lab at Kentucky who uses specifically like a power protocol, mm. which is treadmill based, but meant to augment hypertrophy like you'd see in a resistance training program. And they did note in these female mice that there was a disruption to hypertrophy in those type one muscle, you know, muscle fibers, which are more endurance based but they still should experience hypertrophy with this, this training. And, and they didn't to the extent to where you had an intact microbiome mouse. Got right. It. Right. Got it. So, you know, I think that there's been an effort to look at a variety of, you know, of research. I mean, you could, uh, you know, I was a soccer player. You could probably say that's a hit, you know, a really hit based program. You know, the early study from Clark and the rugby players and humans came out and rugby, I'd say, is probably a a hit type sport. There's these very Mm -hmm. explosive power and they definitely showed that there were nice changes to diversity in the humans seemed to be linked to protein intake. Um, We read a really cool study using swimmers. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the the changes in the microbiome, I think, as you were asking, like, you know, tended to go based on season. So they looked at Mm preseason, you know 
training, ramping up intensity as they got towards the season, and then, you know, coming back down, and they definitely noticed that there was these nice changes, but that when you ramped down the excessive mm. training, that the microbiome, you know, did, you know, change and look a little bit more maybe like preseason, pre-training type okay. things. So, you know, I think this goes back to some of your earlier questions, but also answers this one is, you know, there definitely is probably this bi-directional nature mm-hmm. and that training intensity is likely to play a role. My guess is that training intensity would probably be um, changing the microbiome, whether you're not, whether you're talking about resistance. I mean, cause those training for, you know, maybe a powerlifting event are going to ramp up their training. You know, the interesting thing is we did an end of one study on a power lifter. Um, Then you looked at the diet. You're like, I can't possibly relate (laughs) these changes to anything but diet. Cause to be honest with you, they, they became not on the beneficial side. They seem to be more pathogenic bringing because I'm like, Oh my God, what are you eating? And when we got (laughs) that, and I was like, well, this makes a lot of sense is why these beneficial ones, seem to be going away mm. in favor of, you know, abundances of, you know, not necessarily pathogenic, AKA they're going to cause a right. disease, but more linked to unhealthy behaviors. So the, yeah, the powerlifting yeah. diet is a variable that's not controllable. <laughs> is what you're saying. Right. Well, I mean, I think it is. I think certain people do control it. I think the person we looked at just based on, again, interest and was like, I would love for, you know, it was a great end of one project for an undergraduate student and, you know, to think about a case study. Um, but I think probably some people probably do control their diet better <laughs> than others. And it's possible that those, you know, changes might not be as evident in, right. in someone who's more mindful of a diet. <laughs> Love it. I also got the mental image with during that of a, a mouse like doing squats <laughs> with like a sweatband, you know, I was like, right, that probably right. would be difficult to design that. Well, that's wrong. <laughs> um, so what's really interesting is they have these little like weights like weighted belts oh, things, and they climb up a ladder and that's how you do, wow. you know, one of the ways you can do resistance training so in mice. Wow. You can actually design that study. <laughs> oh so my cool. God, Michael, you've missed your calling. You're making <laughs> right. small barbells. <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, there's always room in the Campbell lab. You're to come play with us. We would love that. <laughs> well, Sarah, I think we're all sold on the importance of the microbiome as it relates, but the question is how close are we to targeted athletic probiotics for improved performance? I, I don't think we're as close as we would like to be. I think for an athlete, you know, I think if there's a purported, you know, performance benefit, there's a will to try, mm. right? You know, mm-hmm. and especially if it do no harm, because I would argue that's the number one, I mean, the number one thing with supplements is do no harm, mm-hmm. right? Is the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. Um you know, placebo effect is always big and so on and so forth. So, Mm -hmm. but back to your question, I think those are a little bit further off. I think, um, and only because we've been proposing grants to look to find which guilds and which microbes, because I don't think it's a microbe, Mm. but I'll be very clear. Interesting. I, I think the way microbes work in these guilds and groups, um, they used to be called, or, you know, genome interaction groups. We've kind of you know, adjusted that term to guild. So they work in, in groups and collection of groups and they influence the way other groups work mm-hmm. um, that I would find it hard. And again, this is science and I could be proven wrong, but I would really find it hard to believe that in the 10 to 12 trillion microbes that we have and the only several thousand that we've maybe identified 
that you can really say that it's one microbe Mm -hmm. or one or two microbes that are driving your exercise adaptations. Mm. I think you're going to find that there are probably groups of microbes that are linked to certain aspects of exercise Mm -hmm. training Mm -hmm. and other groups of microbes that might be linked to other aspects of exercise training. And so I think that, um, you know, the, the, the probiotic, you know, that's, that's out there, um, which I don't think there is any, there, there might be one, I think fit biome tried to advertise a probiotic for, um, athletes. I think it was based on the Villanella study, mm-hmm. you know, by Sheeman at all. Um, but I, I think we're a little bit further. I think with the um, idea that microbes and maybe groups of microbes release metabolites that have heavy influences on systemic function, um, bring up the, you know, the question of what are the metabolic effects of these microbes? I think the advent of using diversity as the end-all be-all measure of, of whether or not you're in good health and, um, is coming not to an end per se, but I think understanding the function of the microbes has become a more important focus than just saying who is there. Yeah, it's a perfect. And I that's exactly right, our that next function, question. Yeah, those functional those functional studies aren't as far along as we'd like to admit, and and I can say that from searching the literature every time we want to resubmit or readjust a, a grant, they're just still not there yet. Yeah, we're we're you know? right there with you. We so. We've had this conversation so many times <laughs> in the medical affairs department here. Right. Because at Genova, we just recently launched uh, whole genome sequencing testing uh, for uh, microbiome metagenomics. And right. it's really helped us to start rethinking, you know, whether the genomic potential to make metabolites is more important than the, an actual laundry list of the bacteria, right? So it's, it's even right. making us rethink, like, this concept of dysbiosis, which is so focused on who's there rather than what they're right. actually doing. So, right. I mean, uh, just your thoughts on, on the importance of studying things like the metabolites. Right. So, I mean, that is always at the, the top of our list of things that, you know, when we include in a grant, I'm like... I at least want to know who's there, and I want to know the metabolites. That that you know, that's one of the the things. Um, I love to get you know to genomics and transcriptomics because then that gets at genetic potential, and then potentially even activity. Mm-hmm. Right? Is the you know protein reflective right. of genetic? You know, it's right. like kind of doing um, just saying, oh, the you know. Um, the mRNA says this, but then you never look at the protein, you know, right. output later. It's mm-hmm. like you have one part of the story, but not the other, because we know post-transcriptional modifications occur at various levels and doesn't necessarily mean what you're seeing at one level is translating to the next level. Right. Right. So I think understanding those metabolites are, are really interesting. And, and a great example is, you know, we've had some um, success with our study with, um, that's, that we're, you know, doing for the office of Naval research right now, where we're looking at, you know, um, their major outcome is looking at, you know, activation of brown fat using the gut microbiota for their naval warfighters for, for, you know, a plethora of reasons. Mm-hmm. And one of the really interesting things that, you know, we're finding, we've presented, um, at a couple of conferences, and apparently it's making a hit. My students now won twice at two separate conferences, like gra- nice. like research, like thing. And, and only because it becomes really interesting, right? We have this model that produces brown fat, right? 
We also know that it exercises a lot. Okay, super cool. Now all of a sudden, right? So then, okay, so we do our antibiotic studies. Let's knock out the microbiome. You know, we did the metabolomics. You know, there's some really cool things going on in the brown adipose tissue related to substrate metabolism that you would naturally think of because that's what it uses to uncouple and get its things going. Um, and then knock out the microbiome, right? All of a sudden, again, reduced exercise capacity. Um, different metabolites being, you know, present in antibiotic treated, but none of those metabolites overlap enough that there's any significant metabolic pathway now relevant in that brown adipose tissue mm. after eliminating the gut microbiota. Wow. And what was really interesting is because the exercise capacity, we wanted to look at the skeletal muscle as well. Mm -hmm. Same thing, post-antibiotic treated skeletal muscle, no metabolic pathways, no metabolites Hmm. higher. Uh, That was the biggest, that that was the difference. That there were some, skeletal muscle, there were none. Hmm. So now you're looking at two, you know, big regulators of energy metabolism, exercise metabolism, and the metabolomics alone are just saying, okay, there's some there before, there's nothing there after, but even more importantly for both tissues, there doesn't seem to be any metabolic pathways that converge based on the metabolites that are left over. Hmm. That's crazy. Yeah, that that's crazy. Well. Awesome. <clears throat> Love that. So, the, I mean, that's pretty, you know, one of the comments that, you know, by one of the, what I found out to be later was, you know, judges after the fact was like, that's really compelling evidence. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. It is. I think so. Yeah. I yes. think that's fair. And, 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 and so I think that that speaks to the metabolomics. Yeah. And, you know, and I think, you know, one of those papers or that paper I was alluding to earlier by my colleague in 2018 with the changes to the, you know, microbiome come before the metabolism. And right. you can only understand that by measuring those metabolic pathways and those metabolites at those time points. Right. Right. And nice. so I think those are the things that are then providing the, the knowledge to us about what's going on and how that's changing. And so, yep. you know, that also can be a game changer. Is it is it a matter of, is it a metabolite acting? Is it the microbe? Chances are it's probably there's some microbe or group of microbes linked to that metabolite, but then like, all right, then that's a really tricky thing to start teasing out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Because you then take that microbe and you put it in dish and you say, okay, it's producing this. And then anybody who knows is going to ask you, well, are you certain that that microbe is going to respond the same way in that dish that it mm-hmm. does in its community? And right. you're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> probably not. Right. Uh, <laughs> thanks for that. Right. And it, and but I think that that's what brings complication to the field. Yeah. And and in some ways, patience with us who try to be on the cutting edge mm-hmm. and, right. and are looking at things for ways because I think it's going to take a little bit longer than most people want it to to get to those interventions. And you can easily understand why a microbiome-based intervention would be cool because it's it's natural. It's not, you know, something that we'd like to think that would be eventually like considered doping or mm-hmm. cheating or something like that, right? You're just taking advantage of the potential of your microbes within your body to help you enhance that symbiosis to, to get a performance benefit. Yeah, yeah. And it really does speak to the importance of that study design that you talked about earlier and, right. and why that's so important. And right. as we're speaking about metabolites versus bugs, I guess one final question is, you know, you deal with a lot of athletes, you know, super healthy people or so we think, and we tend to classify bugs as good or bad, black or white, but it's incredibly complicated as we know. Are there, 
in, sure. in your experience, are there like pathogens or potential pathogens that might surprise us that you commonly see in some of these athletes that are perhaps not even causing a problem? Right. So it is interesting because we do work with these, you know, kind of like I mentioned, my, my colleague in California work with these high runner mice, ones who are, you know, enhanced longevity, have all of these things that you would see in these athletes. And what was really interesting is when we published, you know, a paper a couple of years ago on, on a, a different um, mouse model, we did notice I'm like some of these should be causing disease, mm. but yet they're considered or this model is considered a healthful longevity model, hmm. right? Yeah. So I think it's really, really important. And I think this is probably where getting down to like strain level resolution becomes important because I always say, you know, one of the best examples is acromantia mustinophilia, mm -hmm. right? That was one of the really big ones that came out really early as positively linked to good metabolic health, right. you know, in um, inversely associated with obesity and so forth. You know, when you start to read the ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, cancer research, acromantia mucinophilia is also really high in those diseases right. because its job is to love the mucus, right? Yeah. Mucinophilia, right. we love mucus, uh -huh. right? Um, and it you know, was meant to de degrade some of that mucus lining. And when it's, you know overtly high in a disease state where you want the mucus lining to protect your epithelial from right. being invaded by some of those pathogenic bacteria that we know can be linked to ulcerative colitis and colon, colon cancer and Crohn's disease. It's harmful, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But in metabolic health wise and an otherwise healthy individual, that bacteria is known to be beneficial because chances are it helps turn over maybe mucus that is then providing the nutrients for those resident gut microbiota to feel happy and thrive in yeah. and, and, you know, just hang out in. Yeah. So, yeah. and I think like, you know, technologies that don't yet allow people to get past things like genus mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. can, right. can tell you, yeah, there's lots of, you know, acromancy around and it's like, okay, uh -huh. well, which one is it? Yeah. Or right. you know, are there lots of this around? And I think that, again, that gets to your question of how close are you to the, you know, the, the probiotics? I mean, those are supposed to be strains in there, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, technology that brings out strain level differences and can really enhance that taxonomic resolution are going to be increasingly important. Yeah. Awesome. It's a great story too, because I mean, acromancia was such a darling you it's know, a celebrity for so bug. long. Yeah. And it, was, it just right? goes back to that idea of like everything in balance and we always need to check our assumptions. Right. Um, right. We've had similar realizations with like butyrate as a metabolite where it's like right. same deal. We all thought right. it was great. And then you find ulcerative colitis, corones, you know, you have high butyrate. So it's like, right. So <laughs> right. there's a balance going on here. Correct. Correct. Right. It is. And I think that that's really interesting because, you know, we were, I was kind of having this conversation <laughs> like um, anonymously, because I was reviewing a paper and, you know, it, 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 it's been accepted. So this is a, like they were saying, oh, we didn't find with exercise that butyrate changed. And to be honest with you, we found a change in butyrate producers, but not necessarily in butyrate. And we were afraid to put that out there. But, you know, I keep thinking, I'm like, we don't know if there's a baseline level of butyrate that's just simply required mm -hmm. for exercise. And right. that animal model we used had already met that. 
But what we did know is when we took away the antibiotics and remeasured short-chain fatty acids, the butyrate was low, Mm -hmm. they had a problem exercising. Not that that's end-all be-all, but it speaks to what are even baseline levels of things required for maybe enhanced exercise tolerance? And did our animal model and their model meet that? And, you know, the, the, you know, as you go through the revisions and you read, they're like, this is such a good point. And I just wanted to write back. I'm like, I know, can we start a conversation? Let's design a study because that would be good to know. What is the baseline level of butyrate, Mm -hmm. right? Is there something then, or, you know, acetate or propionate. And then if you're at that, you're good. But when you go below that, then you start seeing that there are going to be these alterations and then maybe, okay, let's involve some sort of strategy to enhance those types of bugs. Mm-hmm. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Makes sense. Right. Dr. Sarah Campbell, we could probably geek out on the microbiome with you for oh hours God, for here. <laughs> Gut Geeks right. Unite. That being said, we're we're just amazed at your work. We mm-hmm. love it. We admire Aww. it so much and we're so grateful you spent time with us. But before we let you go, yes, we do sure. have one last question that I'm okay. gonna kick to Michael Chapman. This is a surprise yes. question. It's, it's a goofy the, question. It's called the fireball. Uh, yeah, it's the it's meant to catch you ball. off guard. And um, when you are not under the weather are you typically somebody who enjoys karaoke and if so do you have a signature song (laughs) oh my god hello i love karaoke and i will sing karaoke even with this voice (laughs) yes a terrible singing voice and i'm a jersey girl do anything bon jovi nice but i do love me some journey oh journey i do love (laughs) i can't you can't deny it but anything bon jovi do also rock star for karaoke it's Perfect a date answer definitely not a fireball question i have karaoke songs a... <laughs> for miles i knew it a layup I knew Miles. it. The, the minute we, we called you, I was like, oh, she's fun. This is going to be great. This is the perfect question for her. I knew yes. it. Jersey girl got it. I'm definitely a fun kind of girl. Like I love at it. karate class in between, they're like playing some music and I'm like jamming out. The kids, <laughs> even the little kids are like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, having fun. Life is too short not to have fun. Right. Like, <laughs> love it. Awesome. Well, again, awesome. Dr. Sarah Campbell, we admire your work. We're going to continue to follow it and hopefully oh, you'll agree to come back on again real soon. Yeah, for sure. And I hope there's a way we can connect because it sounds like some of our interests, you know, overlap with some of the ideas and and things that we're thinking about and how to move, you know, this type of testing and research forward. So it's a deal. It's a deal. You know, what's become obvious to me. What's that? There does appear to be a very significant paradigm shift happening in the fact that we're now seeing that the importance of the metabolites of the bacteria rather than the laundry list census of who's there. Sure. You know what else is interesting? What? I learned a new word, a new sciencey word, okay. guild. Right? Right? I can't wait to throw that one around. I'm going to sound so smart. Oh, my gosh. But seriously, it is fascinating because we've come to that aha moment with our microbiomics profile, but mm-hmm. now to hear that even Dr. Campbell yeah, and her research has found that. So that's really interesting to me. Yeah. Add it to the guild. <laughs> Next time on The Lab Report, we're going to talk about berberine. Oh, more GI talk? Well, it's not just GI. It's about everything. Oh, but, yeah, I mean, we don't have to do it. We no, say let's things, do it. We say we're going to do stuff, and then we don't That's do it all true. the time. It happens all the time. We'll get Neil deGrasse Tyson. Love it. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. It's just so funny.
let me see stuff. It's the greatest title review ever. <laughs> Two stars. How is that not a one star? There's part of I, I don't get the middle school dance part though. Uh, <laughs> what is that about? I, I how are we like a middle school dance? I don't know. Is it because we're like silly and cackly or Perhaps. something? Or it, it loud? May, we're loud. And maybe maybe bad that's, music. That's why we got two stars because she likes to dance. I'm not seeing it. Mm. 